0: Good morning, and welcome to this AltFi webinar.
1: My name is Daniel Lanyon, Editor-in-Chief of AltFi. I want you to cast your mind back at two years, um, almost exactly to the day. Um, That, of course, was when the the pandemic was starting to crystallize into something um, that I think we all um, realized was going to be a long slog. Now. In particular, uh, our subject matter today is going to be its lasting impact on the alternative lending sector. Um, to sort of bring out this discussion, I have with me three very, very excellent uh, speakers who I'm very excited to hear from. Um, so we have Tim Waterman, Chief Commercial Officer at SOPA. Hi, Tim, how's it going?
2: Morning. Yeah, very good, thanks. And uh, really looking forward to taking part in this in this debate. Excellent stuff. And uh, where are you joining us from today, Tim? <laughs> I'm in a, a very dull white room, but uh, I'm back in the office, uh, usually back in three days a week, which is really great. Awesome. some stuff.
1: Um, so also joining me is Amani Atia, CEO of FinCats, an alternative lender. Um, how are you, Amani?
3: Very well, thank you.
1: Excellent. And where are you joining us from today?
3: I'm also actually back in the office in Holborn.
1: Okay, excellent stuff. And so last but not least is Mark England, Head of Commercial Insight at Experian. Mark, how are you and uh, where are you joining us from today?
0: I'm very good, thank you, Daniel. Um, I'm looking forward to today. I'm joining you from my home in Nottingham. Sadly, not in the office today, although we have started that. we uh, back to hybrid working. Excellent
1: stuff. Well, um, as you can probably guess, I'm also at home as well. Um, so we have a, really, a, a truly hybrid um, setup, I guess. Two of us at home, two of us in the office. Uh, very neat indeed. So let's maybe just set the scene. Um, Obviously, the the pandemic has brought lots and lots of changes to all of our um, lives in both professionally and personally. Um, But let's talk specifically about this um, uh, effect on on alternative lending. And and of course, by alternative lending, we're talking about uh, non-bank lenders, um, I guess former sort of P two P lenders, um, in particular here in the UK, um, and uh, you know, very much companies um, such as Thinkers. Um, Amani, I want to start with you. When it comes to, to the UK lending environment um, for consumers and SMEs, obviously you're you're a, specifically an SME lender. Um, do you think we're
3: back to normal? Um, I don't. I don't know what normal really is anymore. Um, I think we definitely are back to what I would call um, BAU lending um, as opposed to government-supported lending, but actually lending on our own uh, company risk, which is good. Um, so I think that that part of the market is, is back. Obviously, the Sybil's program has, has finished and RLS will come to a finish in June. But for us, that's much less of, of a focus So we're back to regular lending off of our own balance sheet, which is great. Um, But I think what has changed is just the level of activity of alternative finance providers and the acceptance by the market, both borrowers as well as um, advisors to companies of um, alternative finance providers as well. so so that's been at least for us that's been a a a tremendous um a tremendous change that really is presenting us with a lot of opportunity and the way we do business obviously has also changed doing it much more both um, face to face now as well as via things like teams and zoom um you know that's also changed the way we're actually doing business and the way our borrowers are also interacting and doing business with us as well
1: okay very, very interesting so i'm, I'm definitely sensing a, a sort of a note of optimism um tim um perhaps do you want to um sort of follow on from that um do you consider things to be back to normal in a sense obviously um you know it's a tricky what tricky time in the world um, at the moment you know what with uh but with um, ukraine and and you know i guess the general sort of reopening of, of the economy um, sort of to to a, to a level of normality um, what, what are your thoughts on on what that means for the uk lending environment
2: yeah i think it depends on how you define normal <clears throat> so i would say that covid's had a few structural impacts which means that we're now in a, a new normal um, so kind of echoing what Amanu said, we are sort of lending at volumes that are consistent or, or slightly above what we were doing before the pandemic, but a few things have really changed. Uh, firstly, COVID really dramatically accelerated the digitization of financial services. Customers now expect much more from the banks, you know, they expect slick customer journeys, digital tools that put them in control, and they want that alongside, you know, a human element at times. Um, And this was kind of further accelerated by the fact that actually banks couldn't offer uh sort of branch based and and had struggles providing phone-based service during the pandemic which really sort of forced them to sort of adopt more digital channels this is an area that zopa really uh sort of um, has strengths in you know we, we really focus on uh sort of a digital loan offering approving loans in under three minutes and really focusing on meeting the key needs of digital consumers And so, we think this has created a really big opportunity for us in in the kind of digital or alternative lending sector. Um, The second thing is that it's had a long-lasting effect on consumers. Um, So, we've talked before, I think, about sort of the haves and have-nots from the COVID pandemic. So, some consumers really benefited actually from lockdown from a financial perspective. They reduced their costs and maintained their incomes. And they use those savings or the extra cash flow to pay down their debts. And actually they're in a really strong position to sort of weather some of the storms that we're going through um, in terms of cost of living increase. <clears throat> there were others who actually sort of saw a, a reduction in their income through furlough or, or maybe job loss at the, at the height of the pandemic. And they become much more financially vulnerable to um, the increased cost of living that we're, we have seen and that we continue to expect to see. Um, and then the third thing is actually a structural impact on the data itself. So through things like the COVID payment deferral scheme, we've actually seen that um, the kind of core data, the, the credit data that we use to make uh, lending decisions has been structurally impacted. And it's impacted things like credit utilisation, um, sort of arrears and delin- um default performance and so that has kind of impacted how we think about the data and it's led Zopa to invest much more heavily in using open banking to assess both uh, credit worthiness and affordability and th- that's an area that we're really leading on and we're really excited about the potential that it has in the future so overall I would say <clears throat> yeah things have things have changed I think it's probably changed to the advantage of the more nimble uh, digital alternative lending players um, and sort of moved away from the kind of the banks really.
3: Yeah.
0: I'm not sure if we've uh, if we've lost Daniel at this point. You know, I think I'll just offer a few additional um, thoughts uh, and Tim touched very nicely on the haves and have nots. Um, I think if we look at the way that credit scores have, certainly consumer credit scores, have panned out through the pandemic, um, it, it has been clear that there have been a number of effects that have actually acted to to keep the scores high um, in the sense that we initially had emergency payment holders, they acted to artificially boost the scores for a while. Coming out of that, um, and this very much leans into their haves and have-nots. Not, have There's a a group of customers, uh, consumers, certainly affluent consumers, who have built up quite considerable balances in back. I think we saw up to as close to 70 billion in additional savings between um, March or February 2020 and mid-21. Um, that started to plateau out. So there are signs that the consumers are starting to eat into that. Um, Alongside that, there was certainly for the first year, 15 months of the pandemic, suppressed demand for credit. So less credit searches or more use of eligibility tools was in turn leading to less hard searches um, on the Bureau. And that in turn was keeping scores high. That said, there's some clear signs that we are moving back into, um, I guess, what can be considered a new normal. Um, we are seeing demand, certainly for cards and loans, getting back to the same levels that they were prior to the pandemic. Um, it's marginally depressed in some of the other product groups. Uh, we have seen credit cards start to ramp up the balances that are on there. So after 15 months of consecutive falls in balances being held on cards, we now have nine months of rises. Still only at 62% of the pandemic level, but there is a sign that people are, are increasing spending. I think we have done it by now. Excellent. Apologies for
1: that. i had some internet troubles. Um, Hard to know what the cause was, but I think it's normalised now, so sincere apologies for that um, to all the audience. Um, So I I think, obviously, you've you've been picking up on on what's been happening with people's um, credit scores, uh, Mark. Um, Thank you for that. Um, I think there's a very interesting point um, that Tim raised. I just want to come back to about this sort of uh, twin behaviour. Apologies if it's sort of... um, if it's repeating uh, uh, what you were just saying, but um, I guess what I'm interested in know is is that story of the sort of haves and have nots of COVID um, has that carried on into you know, 2022, two years on, or has it started to normalise? Um, Mark, I, you might have touched on it, but um, could you could you yeah just sort of let, let us know um,
0: about that if not. So, so there's an element of that still there. I think that there's very clearly a population of consumers that are that are carrying considerable balances on their accounts still. And even though those savings or the accrual savings has, has plateaued started to decrease, they're starting to eat into that. The have nots um, is definitely a subpopulation of the, the, the group overall. Um, we're not seeing immediate, we are seeing tick-ups in ticks up in delinquency rates within that population not starkly yet, but I think that um, we touched on cost of living earlier, and I think that that's going to be um, front of mind for a lot of people going through this year. So scores and affordability checks traditionally are backwards looking based on historical performance. We know that we have sharp rises in consumer costs, challenges to disposable income, um, costs flowing through the economy from the impact of Ukraine, but all of that is forward looking future looking and it's not reflected in the in the standard view that you would have of risk
1: okay very, very interesting and is um you know is some of that pressure uh, the cost of living i guess um you know mainly driving it is that going to affect you know the same group of people who who also were in the sort of the have-nots of um of of the covid period um, disproportionately, or is it something that you think is going to be, you know, a negative impact across, I guess, uh, consumers?
0: Um, I'd say disproportionately, um, Daniel. And if, if, the reason for that is if you look at the um, look at the, the challenges in in fuel costs, for example, we know from modelling that we've done that's that's going to significantly push. Um, I think at the moment that the, they they talk about ten percent of the, of the economy being in fuel crisis, I think we're going to, that's going to push it to 20% of the economy, and it will be the people who haven't necessarily built up as much savings to eat into, um, unless there's a, a trend of people starting to use credit to fund living. Okay. Go ahead, just sorry. To-
2: okay sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, just, just to build on that, I think one of the things that we observed in the pandemic was that actually it was quite predictable in terms of the segments of the economy that actually suffered more. And they were, you know, it reflected people who are working in sectors like leisure and hospitality. Um, I think Mark's definitely right about sort of the the structural impact of rising costs. But we we expect looking forwards that um, sectors like the public service may be more impacted because that tends to be a sector where wage growth lags inflation quite considerably. Whereas a lot of the private sectors, um, you know, we're observing that wage inflation is still running ahead of, of costs at the moment. Um, so that, that's kind of certainly something we're thinking about. Um, we're also expecting a bit of a rebalancing of the economy. So during lockdowns, consumers began consuming kind of physical goods and they were buying lots of things on Amazon and they were consuming less um, services. We would expect a rebalancing towards uh, the service economy as people become more confident kind of moving freely and then starting into restaurants um, uh, in the future and that's likely to have an impact on the labour market and, and consumers
1: okay very interesting indeed I, I really like to pick up that with um uh, Amani actually um, but i should just say to the audience um we do have about half an hour left of our main discussion Um, then we'll be going to about 15 minutes of questions. So I can see already a few questions have come in, but please do um, ask questions and we will try to get to as many as we can um, in that 15 minute uh, gap at the end. Um, If you do ask a question, uh, we'd love to hear um, who is asking it. Um, So please do see your name and and your company um, if possible. Um, So Amani, picking up on on what Tim was saying about um, a pivot to to services um, from consumers, Obviously, as an SME lender, um, you know, you're, you're looking at sectors um, as well as, as uh, specific businesses. Can you just give us a sense of what um, the demand from uh, borrowers is like at the moment for you? And, um, you know, I know you've had a very good um, sort of two, three years as a business, but um, is, is sort of demand for, for loans um, from SMEs in sort of root health? And uh, is that particularly, you know, skewed towards, for example, uh, the services?
3: so um we've um what we've seen in our segment of the marketplace which again is the smaller part of the of the middle market is there was a pickup certainly in in borrowing um by that segment um during kind of the, the the heart of the lockdown back in 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 2020 but borrowing has returned to more normal levels now um the demand we're seeing a lot of demand um uh for m a activity or borrowing related to m a activity because they're seeing opportunities in the marketplace um and we're seeing some demand from some of the you know growth players people who are who are growing quite quickly so that certainly con- continued um, a, what we do is is mostly cash flow lending so there's a lot of services that that really relate, relate to that um, and um so we're we're seeing a lot of demand there but again in segments where the borrowers are seeing opportunities to either acquire businesses or to continue to invest in their businesses to grow.
1: Okay. Very interesting indeed. Um, is that typically, you know, are you typically seeing, um, demand from new borrowers or is it, or is it sort of existing borrowers who, you know, like you said are interested in M&A?
3: Both actually. So, um, a lot of our existing borrowers are looking around and looking to, increase their borrowing in order to, to finance um, some m and activity. But also we're still a young company, so we still rely on, uh, on going out into the marketplace and converting people to us. Um, so uh, I think probably this year about um, 10% or so of our lending will be to our existing um, portfolio of companies. The rest being to to new borrowers um, that uh, that we're able to bring in and and uh, service. Okay,
1: super, super interesting. Um, I just want to flag to our audience um, a story up on AltFi.com um, that was published about an hour ago. Um, it's uh, it centers on Funding Circle's uh, results for 2021. Obviously, Funding Circle, um, a very big um, alternative lender, you know, one of one of the first, <laughs> along with Thin caps um and um the essence of, of numbers that were released um shows a 64 million pound profit for the company for the year which i think is their first full year profit um i think there was a bit of cost going cost cutting going on but clearly um, also um you know sort of some benefits from the, the lending schemes um that i think think Arts also took part in um you mentioned earlier um C-bills. Um let's I just want to take a little bit of a step back and, and look at the kind of the industry-wide picture. So um two years ago there was a lot of concern for alternative lenders. Obviously it was the first big test um of the industry um in terms of you know the first big uh sort of potential um macro event you know negatively impacting its um, ability to, to function. Um but you know, there, there was obviously this very quick move to, to help with the distribution, particularly for SME lenders um, of these government backed schemes. Um, Amani, I just want to come back to you on, on how you see kind of the, 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 the industry sort of from a, a wide point of view um, maturing over this period, because I think, you know, it's, it's very obvious to say that it has and a lot has changed. What are, what are your thoughts on the, on the sort of industry wide um, change?
3: So for for the industry, I think, you know, the SME lending is not an asset class that is well known in the marketplace, particularly to investors, which alternative finance providers need investors to support us and to support our funding. Um, So I think what the government schemes allowed um, and, and we certainly experienced this, what the government schemes allowed is for investors to kind of dip their toe in in a way that gave them comfort. Um, and i'm sure funding circle benefited from that we've benefited from that i'm sure you know a number of other alternative finance providers benefited from that as well and you know once investors start getting educated to this asset class um, in the marketplace we'll just be able to access much more funding at hopefully you know better rates um, so that really i think is is a big or was a big propellant for this marketplace in educating, you know, investors into the value of SME lending. Um, and I think, um, you know, once, once they um, uh, look at the asset class and get comfortable with the asset class, again, that will open up with hopefully the benefits of, you know, greater pools of funds and at better rates that borrowers will then be able to benefit from as well.
1: And, and has that very much happened? Is uh you know, has there been a, a sort of, um, you know, a, I guess a sea change in in how investors view sort of SME loans as an asset class that, you know, they're more comfortable now,
2: I guess, is what I'm saying.
3: Yes, they're more comfortable. You know, they they um, started looking at it because of all of the, the noise around Sybil's, which, which was a positive noise around Sybil's. <laughs> And, you know, we've been very active in trying to educate them as to the value of, of um, this asset class, as have others. And, um, you know, that that has been a, a huge boost, um, a huge boost to us and to the marketplace.
1: Interesting. And um, Tim, Zopus obviously had a very, very transformative um, two years, um, not just with what's happening in the, in the wider economy and world, but... Um, you've obviously launched your your credit card, um, secured the banking license, um, and sort of, I guess, pivoted the business a bit um, and symbolically um, sort of ended the kind of the P2P period of the business as well. Um, can you talk us a, through a little bit about that and maybe also reflect on um, some of uh, Amelie's points around, um, I guess, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if you're still taking on, I think you're still taking on external funding, um, but maybe, a yeah, be interesting to see uh, nonetheless what you think about whether uh, credit investors are increasingly sort of demanding um, these sorts of assets obviously consumer for
2: you yeah so uh, just to kind of i guess bring you up to speed with our story of the last couple of years we, we launched the bank in 2020 and since then we've attracted <clears throat> a billion in deposits we've put more than a billion of loans on our balance sheets and issued um credit cards um within 18 months becoming A top five credit card issuer in the UK by new volumes. We've also kind of tripled our uh, revenue per customer through that period. Um, I would echo a lot of um, what Amity was saying, and actually what Funding Circle have said in the press that actually, sort of, COVID has been sort of the making of digital lending in some ways. Um, It's reset expectations, both of kind of SME uh, borrowers, but also um, consumers as well. And so, we are really positive about the future. Um, Lending is a really big part of our strategy and we're excited to see sort of consumer shift towards um, more digital open market channels away from um, sort of in-franchise bank lending. So we think actually uh, that there's a a great future in both the consumer and SME markets. Um, In terms of how we're funded, we're actually kind of funded at the moment through consumer retail deposits um, rather than um, kind of institutional, uh, kind of financing, and said so that's not really um, an area I can I can comment on at the moment.
1: Okay, okay. very interesting. Um, so, Mark, I, I want to just um, focus a bit on um, you know what we were talking about um, a few minutes ago, uh, particularly around the government-backed lending schemes, because clearly that's been a, a really key uh, component in in the evolution of alternative lending in the last um, two years. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of talk around default rates, um, especially for bounce back loans, um, but also for sea um, bills, um, coronavirus business interruption loan scheme. I, I seem to remember the acronym being. Um, what's your experience been? And um, yeah, what can you what can you tell us about the impact it's had on the lending market?
0: So, I think the first thing I say is you shouldn't necessarily. Uh, there has been a lot of talk about about fraud and default rates and um, loss. With peoples. Um we shouldn't overlook the benefits that these that the schemes have brought to. Um brought to organisations. And in terms of the performance of the loans that we see on Bureau at the moment, still the case that um, 90% of the loans are up to date in their payments. Now a significant proportion, about 25% of the population have taken up pay-as-you-grow terms, so there could be a warning sign there that, uh, that there's potential losses emerging. But there's a, still a significant population that are that are up to date with their with their people so far. Um, and it certainly helped organisations weather um a part of the, the the crisis i think where it does get interesting is where you look at some of the challenges at a sector level um so whilst whilst we have a, a kind of about 90 percent overall um beneficially or all in term at the moment we've got a sharp tick up in arrears coming through and we see that playing through in particular in a couple of sectors um, probably not surprisingly transport and storage given some of the um rises in both people and um, fuel costs over the last year. I think I think now we're at a point where one in seven of those loans is showing some signs of stress. Um, one or more payment in arrears. So there's so there are sectoral challenges in there. But by and large we shouldn't overlook the, the benefits that the schemes brought to the brought to organizations and overall. I think the question um will be as we work through this year how do things pan out? How do the sectoral challenges pan out? How do some of the cost challenges for organisations play through in the performance of loans?
1: Okay, interesting. Can you can you give us a sense, you know, by maybe putting a number of how material that sort of tick up is, um, or you know, putting it on the spot here. But is, is there any sort of rough number you can put to it?
0: Um, I, I, so one thing I can say is that there's around. There's around 1.2 billion that we can immediately say is linked to companies that are showing some type, some kind of stress or um, in, in the highest risk bands in terms of company risk. I, I think I'd, I'd leave it at that. There's some other potentially scary numbers floating around there, but um, things do change quite rapidly. That's true, very true. Um, okay, well, look, we've talked a lot about, I guess,
1: some of the, the more um, macro and industry-wide um, effects um, of the pandemic. Um we've touched a little bit on on changes in the customer experience and um, the I guess the the changing expectations of customers. Um so starting on the on the consumer side, Tim, what do you think are um, are the major changes that have happened, um, you know, for, for would be borrowers? And um, and do you, you know, do you I, I think you've sort of said it a little bit, but do you feel that, you know, these are good loans to be
2: writing. Is it is it a good is it a good time to be a, a consumer lender? Yeah. So if, if I, just to touch on some of the consumer trends, then I'll talk about the lending um, piece. As I've mentioned before, we've seen a real kind of shift in expectations from consumers when it comes to um, sort of really slick digital services being provided by lenders. Um, we've also kind of seen a bit of a redistribution of demand. Um, so within of the, the car finance segment, for instance, we're seeing that consumers are increasingly uh, likely to kind of purchase cars online and are, are looking to kind of get financing online too, um, and we're beginning to see that so BNPL is emerging as a, um, I wouldn't say a threat, but, but something that's likely to coexist alongside um, you know, traditional credit cards and, and loans, and, and so those are, kind of, those are kind of some of the key trends, I think, in the, on the product side in consumer lending. Um, the lending that we're writing at the moment um, is is really robust. We're we're actually up about kind of thirty percent on the levels that we were writing uh, pre-pandemic, and we're you know really happy with the, the unit economics. I think that's partly testament to our agility and ability to adapt um, to kind of the changing environment through the pandemic. We were very kind of quickly able to ingest uh, new data about consumers about the kind of companies and segments that they were, they were working in. Um, and we've been overlaying a lot of sort of judgment to kind of assess kind of forward-looking risks. And that's that's really sort of enabled us to continue to lend at high volumes whilst achieving um, strong unit economics. And, and that's something that we're going to continue to do um, you know, as we move into a slightly different um, challenge now with um, some of the effects of the cost of living crisis and, and potentially the, the kind of prolonged war in Ukraine, if there is one. Okay, very, very interesting. I remember um,
1: we did a we did a webinar um, just probably under two years ago with uh, with Giles Andrews, um, obviously Sopers uh, founder, and, and I remember him saying that um, you know some of the best loans you can write are in the recovery phase of the economic cycle, and um, you know I've got an economics degree, I'm not don't feel quite qualified to say we're in the recovery phase because <laughs> it feels too uncertain with one thing or another, but. Um is that very much the mood in, in SOPA in your you know in your credit underwriting teams that you know this is a this is a sort of um a purple period to be to be
2: lending? Yeah, that's definitely true. I've I've um I've been lending through a, a couple of cycles now and it is it is very true to say that actually as you come out of a pandemic you tend or, sorry out of a recession you tend to overestimate the downside risks um which which can kind of lead to surprisingly positive credit performance you also tend to be in an environment where there's less uh, competition within the market which means that um you attract better selection and have more pricing power so it's, it's certainly our view the you know, whilst we have to manage key risks now is a really good time to be to be writing business as long as we're, we're doing it prudently okay interesting and
1: um, I think um, obviously it's a very different experience for um, Smes in terms of how they access um, loans but but did any of the the changing customer sort of expectations and and um, demands sort of strike a tone that, that Tim mentioned uh, amani for your, for your borrowers on the SME side
3: um, yes. Again, it's different for SMEs because it's not for them uh, the digital experience that's important. What's important for them is um, the speed of, of the way you're able to provide a, a, a decision and the actual um, loan itself, the consistency of which you do it, the transparency of communication, and the flexibility that, that you can give them to structure something that works for them. Um, and I think all of those Work well for alternative finance providers because that's that's what we um, that's our, our model for, for what we provide um, to the marketplace. So I think that's changed. In other words, they're more demanding of those things than they m- might have been um, pre the the pandemic, um, and that's that's really helped us um, uh, get more into into the marketplace and 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 become more successful in the marketplace and take more market share. Um, so so that's definitely changed, and that's changed for the better. Of course, the way we're doing things has also changed. So we're much more digitalized. Um, and that has really improved the experience for the customer, which is positive, but it's also improved, you know, our efficiency, our model, the way the way we're able to deliver our service and the cost at which we can deliver our service.
1: Interesting stuff. Um, I noted from from funding service results that they'd I think gone up to 70% of um, their lending being automated or like an automated decision at least, um, and I think I'm correct in saying that um, that nucleus um, commercial finance they also have, um, have sort of moved a lot to this sort of automated lending model. And you know I appreciate that that you do a bit sort of um, larger ticket sizes than, than the likes of um, funding circle, but is is automated lending part of part of that digitization that, that you just mentioned?
3: So we've always. Um um tried to automate um the information that we receive and we've tried to um, automate the very front end where you know the initial review of of the transaction is it is it um you know a good transaction that we're interested in pursuing and that we can price well or is it something we probably shouldn't be pursuing so that part is automating but our view is the actual decision of of the actual lending decision Um, is a manual process for us because once you get particularly into the middle market, there's so many critical elements that you can't just automate through. For example, the quality of management. If somebody can figure out a way to automate that, I I welcome that. But that's very fundamental to the businesses. And we saw that through, through the pandemic very much so. So there are parts of what we do that is automated. For example, the ongoing monitoring. That, that we're doing of our customers. Once we, we put them on our books, we're, we're increasingly automating parts of that um, so that you know, we can help those customers that need help and kind of let those customers who don't need help to be. Um, so we're trying to automate parts of our process and have automated parts of our process that we feel comfortable in automating um, and in looking at data to, to make those decisions. But those parts where we feel that data is not enough um, you know, we can't and we won't automate those those aspects.
1: Okay, interesting. And what about, um, I guess, sort of meeting face to face? Because, you know, I know you've got a sort of a network of, of um, you know, people around the country, obviously, who are who are meeting people in, in normal times. Um, that was obviously a struggle for, for lots of people and you know, uh, lots of businesses, lots of sectors um, that sort of change in, in, I guess, face to face discussions or meetings. Have you changed how you do that sort of analysis of, of company management? Say, are you more happy to do to do you know things like this, like a Zoom call or um, or you know or whatever um, to um, I guess make that assessment? Or have you now sort of gone back to to being you know I guess um, in person more?
3: So again, I think most businesses are probably having the, the same experience, which is. Um, we now have a new tool, which is, you know, Team Zoom, the, the, the way we're, we're meeting today, which is great. So It's another tool in our toolbox. So where we think we need a face to face meeting, either um, to diligence um, the, the company or the initial meeting um, or, you know, uh, um, events with advisors, for example, to to um, improve or or Begin the relationship. We'll do face to face where we think a Teams or Zoom meeting is sufficient for what we need to do. We'll do that. So it's really another tool in our toolbox that we'll use um, to make sure that we're um, getting the right communication with with borrowers and with advisors.
1: Okay, interesting. Um, now, Mark, I want to to come um, to you next to talk about sort of the changes in in technology. Um, yeah. Obviously, there's been quite a lot happening um in terms of the uh the tech of credit scoring um i think you you also launched your your boost feature um in over this sort of period um what new innovations are you sort of seeing coming to market and how are they impacting um i guess the the experience for the lender and the borrower
0: so um there's two or three things that come to mind in particular. Um, so, firstly, I mean, you talked about Boost. Boost is a good example. Um, use of open banking data to enable consumers to improve their their credit score, um, and it's a, it's a tool that we've seen um, really good take up. Actually, I think we've had over over a million customers sign up for it, and it's been clear from the profile of customers that the these are younger people who are renting, maybe more employment fluid, um, and wow. so it gives them an opportunity to improve their credit their credit scores without a reliance on. More traditional um, approaches, so that's that continues to be a focus for us. Um, we're going to be making changes this year to take into account the change in validation rules for the FCA. Um, we certainly want to increase the um, take up or use of the the revised scores by by lenders. Um, so that's one area of focus. Um, Secondly, can,
1: can I just quickly interrupt? Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, sure. um, uh, Forgive me, but how about how long ago was it you launched the, the boost feature? And uh, so, how long has it been to to, to clock up a million users?
0: Um, I couldn't tell you the exact start date, but it landed somewhere within that pandemic period.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure, I think so. Yeah, I could. I, I mean, it's a it's a Google away, but you know, I, I could <laughs> remember. So, okay.
0: Um, so, so there's a couple of other things aside that, that I, I think it's worth worth mentioning. Um, and again, this is. Um, focusing very much on people who are or that, that profile of people who are younger again more employment fluid um, and that's around payroll verification so one of the things that we are moving into now is enabling us to provide or share payslip data directly with lenders during the decisioning process um, that's something that we're working with with a couple of the, the largest payroll providers So i think we're at a point already where we can share data on over 11 million 11 million consumers Um, And then forward-looking, it's how we can use the assets that we have that are available to us to help lenders prepare for the cost of living challenges, so identify the the riskier part of the population or riskier estimates. Excellent, excellent, thank you. Um, I want to to now move on
1: to um, talking uh, a bit about buy now pay later which is obviously something Tim mentioned. Um, I think it's fair to say it's been one of the biggest Shifts in um, in lending, um, you know, in the last two years, obviously driven by e-commerce. Um, the you know the growth in e-commerce during the pandemic, but I think also you know it's a it's a, at least from my point of view, a structural change as well. Um, can you talk a little bit about buy now pay later, uh, Mark, and and what that means for for credit scoring?
0: So. I think there's a, there's a few things to, to talk about, and Tim actually um, talked very nicely about buy now pay later potentially coexisting rather than eroding existing finance, and I think that's something that we we are seeing at the moment. So we aren't necessarily seeing a change in a see change in lending habits, spending habits maybe, but um, not lending habits at the moment. It's not a sign a sign that buy now pay later is is um, Massively eroding, for example, the credit card base, but more that it's becoming a, a tool that coexists. I think that right now where we are as credit bureaus, we've done a lot of work with buy now pay later organisations looking at search data and the interaction of buy now pay later customers. Um, we are just starting to get buy now pay later performance data shared with the credit bureaus. I think that's been um, been signalled quite a lot in the public domain recently. Um, so it, it's how I think there's two aspects to that. How does Bar pay later performance impact or overlay of uh, the credit forms. Do we see some of the concerted um, or use of other forms of credit to pay bar I pay later? Um, but then there is also the the, the positive aspect to it, uh, and that is mm-hmm. that bar pay later customers are people who aren't necessarily traditionally represented at bureau. And again, it, it gives them um, potentially more visibility more access more more transparency about their their finance financial relationship and how it pertains to to their profile as a whole Um, i think that's a message that needs to be managed very carefully though because one of the 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 news items that we've seen over the last couple of weeks is um consumers concerns that the sharing of buy now pay later may adversely impact credit scores i don't think that'll be the case as we work through analyzing data that'll that'll play through but that is a concern that we certainly need to consider very, very interesting indeed. Um, we, we have a few minutes before we
1: move to um, some questions from the audience. So just as a reminder to our audience, um, do please ask a question um, now. We will we will really aim to, to get to as many as possible. Um, do obviously, um, as I mentioned before, um, put your name and, and where you're from. Um, so just before we move those audience questions, I want to um, add uh, one last question of my own. Um, So, you know, there is no shortage of um, Mm. uncertainty now, two years on from the pandemic, um, particularly around inflation, uh, rising energy prices, and of course, uh, the situation in Ukraine. Um, What do you think the potential end of the pandemic, um, and reduce concern around Brexit hopefully as well? means for optimism, obviously taking into account those those other um, sort of macro issues as well. Um I want to ask all of our panelists um, whether they are more or less optimistic about the lending environment in 2022 and beyond um you know compared to let's say two years ago. and um, Amani, I'd like to start with you. What are you more or less optimistic?
3: I think I would say I'm cautiously optimistic because <laughs> that was well, not- Sorry. That wasn't an option. But yeah. Well, I'm making it one. <laughs> um, okay. You know, and, and again, in our market, there's we're we're seeing a lot of a lot of activity, a lot of opportunity um, and a lot of very good credits. Um, so that's obviously making us very optimistic. But there is a lot of unknowns and there's a lot of. You know headwinds that are out there, and we've talked about a number of them the inflation's coming, the economy, the staff shortage, the supply chain issues, oil prices, Ukraine. So, there is a lot out there. Um, and so we are we're 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 active, um, but you know, we're we're looking at things and we're making sure that the companies that, that we're lending to are going to you know, have the capability to sustain some of these, some of these headwinds. So I'm, I'm going to select cautiously optimistic.
1: Okay. Okay. Nice. And Tim, what about yourself?
2: Yeah, I think if I take a long-term view, I'm really sort of bullish on the future of the fintechs and digital banks. I think the, this kind of shift towards uh, or the shift in consumer expectations really sets those firms up to compete in the market. There's a huge kind of captive audience that's still served by banks, and their needs just aren't being well met by by those kind of traditional banks that they currently borrow with. So we expect a huge growth opportunity as they look towards uh, sort of alternative lenders uh, fintechs and digital banks. I think you know short term um, you know it could be it could be a little bit rocky, and I think it's up to lenders to make sure that they are kind of thinking about some of the risks that are presented um, due to this kind of cost of living crisis. Um, but I would say, again, the fact that sort of we're much more agile and, and able to react to kind of changing data points, we're able to consume new data. We're actually really well positioned to sort of weather what we expect will kind of happen over the next um, kind of weeks and months.
1: Excellent stuff. Uh, Mark, for yourself, um, more optimistic, less optimistic?
0: Compared to two years ago, certainly more optimistic I think that the the move to the move to digitization and the acceleration of that is something that that wasn't apparent two years ago so the way that the pandemics accelerated that has been um, has opened a lot of doors and a lot of opportunities for both companies consumers and SMEs um, I wouldn't shy away from the headwinds over the next 12 months though I, I certainly know that there are um, there are shocks to play through uh, we've got multiple rises in energy costs for consumers. We've got how those energy costs impact SMEs, and we've got the the, the fuel costs and other costs impacting SMEs overall. So more more optimistic than two years ago, maybe less optimistic than a month ago.
1: Okay, very interesting. Um, let's move to some audience questions. Um, we have a few that have come in um, on a variety of subjects, and so um, let's maybe start with... Uh, Actually, this is quite an interesting one. I, I'm not sure how relevant it is um, based on, on you know, some of our discussion. But um, so somebody asked, I didn't actually give their name, um, but uh, there's a risk of uh, f- uh, further cementing biases when using algorithms at scale. Um, how do organizations, um, and I guess uh, lenders, ensure that auto-validation uh, um, is reassessed frequently? And um, Tim, is, is that relevant at all for, for Zopa?
2: Yeah, this is definitely a risk that we're cognizant of. Um, even if you don't put certain characteristics in a model, there are often features within those model models which are correlated with them and can lead you to inadvertently discriminating or kind of taking actions that you're not expecting. Um, without going into too much detail, this is something that we really, we think about hard and we've developed frameworks and, and partnered with um, actually firms like Amazon to sort of really understand sort of what's going on within these sort of um, often described as black box, model, black box models that we use. And so we're you know constantly monitoring those risks um, with, with a view to kind of making sure that, that they don't pan out essentially. Interesting. Um, Amani, is that is that relevant on the SME side for for you, for you guys at Pincuts?
3: Not really, because we don't. Again, we don't use models in our in our ultimate credit decision making. Um, you know, you have to be careful of people's individual biases in, in, in their own heads. But um, you know, we, we certainly don't don't um, make any credit decisions on the basis of of underlying models.
1: And um, Mark, what what about yourself? And um,
0: do, do you have a sort of view, I guess, from a credit bureau perspective? There's, there's, there's certainly relevance. Um, I, I think that, uh, as Tim says, it comes, around, it comes to the framework that you put around the development um, and the monitoring and performance of the models, as much as anything. I'm sure our, our analytics team will, do, will have a uh, field day with that question as well. Good
1: stuff, good stuff. Um, so. I have a question from James Crennan, and um, from Walker Morris. Uh, he says, um, referencing I guess their, their own research, and um, that three quarters of SMEs um are still unable to obtain mainstream bank financing. Um, I think Arnani, this is definitely one for you um to jump in on straight away. Um do you think that mainstream lenders' appetite to lend is changing as we come out of the pandemic? And if so, What might this mean for opportunities for alternative finance providers?
3: Well, even before the pandemic, mainstream lenders were retreating from this marketplace. Um, I think, um, you know, during the pandemic, what they were mostly focusing on was their existing borrowers and and supporting those existing borrowers through it. So we um, took advantage of that opportunity to really um, increase our penetration of the marketplace during that time. Um, As we've come out, we've seen actually a little bit more appetite on their side, but certainly not um, anywhere near the the appetite that's going to be needed to fund the SME sector of the economy. And that's why we think it's such a great opportunity. And that's really what we've been trying to educate, you know, lenders to um, or new investors, sorry, to um, in order to get, um, you know, more support for, for this segment of the marketplace. Okay. so we um, agree there's there's a huge sure. funding gap um for for Sme
1: borrowers. And, and, and that's as alive as ever it was before the pandemic
3: yeah yeah
1: okay very interesting um tim there's a specific question um for you um again no unfortunately no uh, name or company attached to it um to what extent are uh, the impacts of covid behind the decision to choose a banking license over the retail p 2 p funding model And what other factors were key? I think it's fair to say that the decision was sort of made quite a while before the pandemic, but can you maybe just um, give us some, some color on that?
2: Yeah, so we're really proud of what we achieved as a peer-to-peer business. We were actually the first kind of peer-to-peer business launched globally and kind of over the course of 16 years. Uh, we delivered kind of really strong and consistent returns for our investors, and, and that includes actually through the great financial crisis and, and the recent coronavirus pandemic. Um, unfortunately, over the last few years, consumer trust in peer-to-peer investing has been damaged by a small number of businesses whose practices were um, so sort of causing harm to consumers ultimately or retail investors. And this, linked with the changing regulation that, that followed, meant that um, the operational the of running a peer-to-peer business and the cost of attracting new investors meant that it we didn't really uh kind of see it as a, a viable business model going through forwards um there was another there was also another factor though that influenced the launch of the bank and that is that peer-to-peer lending is well suited to fixed-term lending where the duration is known but we were very keen to get into other asset classes like secured auto and credit cards which are inherently much more complex and and much more suited to um, bank kind of a a retail deposit funded model okay very very interesting um i'm gonna ask a bit of a curveball here
1: but i'd love um something i've been sort of turning over do you think the the peer-to-peer lending sort of model um you know which i which i've always argued in many ways is some of the you know the most ambitious sort of structural change that you know within the fintech world um do you think it could be rebooted you know and um and don't laugh but you know perhaps even you know with sort of the adoption of crypto um and and you know i guess uh you know, various um, developments in blockchain technology um and some sort of d5 do you think maybe we could see some sort of rebirth of, of the peer to peer lending world um uh tim i'll come, I'll come to you do you obviously because we've just been talking about it but obviously very keen to hear from everyone else as well
2: Yeah, I think there are certainly some interesting opportunities there to invest in different asset classes that are potentially sort of backed by um, yeah a a DeFi model. Um, I think going back to what I said there, there, that probably needs to be a slight rebalancing of of the regulation because as as I mentioned, it it is quite hard to operate a a kind of retail investor kind of peer-to-peer business in the current climate, and actually be able to attract. Um, investors at scale um, such that you know you can generate meaningful uh, kind of revenue volumes. Sure okay interesting. Um, and Marty I, I
1: actually forgot to mention but Funding Circle also sort of officially closed their um, peer-to-peer business or their retail platform um, as they as they put in their results and um, today it's been pretty much closed for two years but um, they sort of officially closed it. Um, so you know, what are your thoughts on whether there could be uh, a future rebooting of the of the sort of peer-to-peer the marketplace lending model for um, for retail investors? And um, obviously, I think Thin um, moved away from that model, you know, quite some time ago, way before the pandemic. Um, but what are your thoughts, just as, a, as an industry observer?
3: Well, I think it's interesting. You have Thin cats, which began life as a peer-to-peer. Uh, Zupa, which also became life as a peer to peer, we both closed our peer to peer platforms. I think, from my vantage point, um, and for the asset class that we work in, SMEs, I don't think peer to peer is an appropriate model, and it's really because it's not appropriate for you know the the, the typical lender because they don't really understand the credit. Um, they don't have access to the full information. They don't have access to you know expertise. So I think there there might be um, asset classes which lend themselves which don't require the the technical skill set to really understand the the underlying credit. So there. So I think from a regulatory perspective, the regulators have to be very careful in making sure that um, the broad investor base, retail investor base, really does both understand what they're getting into and have the right information and the full information to really make an assessment. But again, in the SME market, I I can't see a model that really would make it appropriate for retail investors to come in and invest in an individual loan level. Um, I think once you get into more sophisticated investor base and investors will include um, you know, pension funds and other institutional investors, which retail investors can obviously invest in, I think that makes more sense. Um, but I think, you know, we have to be very careful about the asset classes that lend themselves to peer-to-peer. Yeah, really interesting answer. Thank you.
1: Um, Mark, I um, you know, appreciate it's, it's not necessarily your your sort of area. You know, I don't think Experian ever had a, a peer-to-peer business, but um, but what are your thoughts on, on that sector? You know, it definitely feels like a bit of a, a closure with with funding circle officially sort of um, sort of announcing their their um, ending of their retail business.
0: Uh, I, I would completely defer to Tim Tim as an expert in this um, <laughs> space. And um, what I would say so that's something interesting that you touched on um, that I, I I wonder when we think look at think and look at future innovation is that the whole crypto piece, but crypto for transactions, um, how to enable spending with those assets is a, a challenge. I don't know what the solution is, but I think that's 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 a potential area of focus over the coming year or years.
1: Okay, okay, very good. Um, now we are swiftly running out of time. Um I think we can't put another fifty P in the meter, unfortunately. So we are gonna have to um, wind things up. Um, but thank you very much to our speakers, uh, Mark, Amani, um, and Tim. Some very, very interesting answers there. Um, and of course, a huge thank you to our audience um, for tuning in. Um, thank you everyone who asked a question. Um, I think we, you know, it's fair to say um, we covered a lot, but um, you know, there's still obviously a lot more um, that we could be, be looking at. Uh, we will be covering the alternative lending space over on AltFi.com. Um, so please do head over there, sign up to our newsletters, um, altcoin.com forward slash newsletters, where you can hear all about um, latest developments. Um, I think we also have uh, in the um, box below the screen, you can download a report from Experian uh, on the impact of bounce back loans, um, uh, bounce back loan scheme on SMEs. Um, so thank you very much and uh, see you next time.
3: Thank Thank you. you.